This Week in Startups is brought to you by Fundrise provides access to diversified portfolios of private real estate to all investors with their industry-leading, easy-to-use platform. Sign up today at fundrise.com slash twist. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash twist. Our crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join our crowd for free at O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D.com slash twist. And Brainbase. Protecting your ideas should be simple. Built by founders for founders, Brainbase File is a clean and automated trademark filing platform that gives anyone the ability to protect their idea. File now for just $169 at brainbase.com slash twist and at checkout use code twist. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Startups. We had a great time having Dara Khosro Shahi on the podcast from Uber uh, recently. And we talked a little bit about how Uber had sold their self-driving unit to Aurora, uh, a company that was founded by today's guest. The CEO and co-founder of Aurora is with us today. His name is Chris. Ermson, welcome to the program, Chris. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Now, people may or may not know this, but you are kind of a legend in self-driving. You were part of DARPA's self-driving contests. I think that was in the early aughts. When did that program start? And maybe you could explain for pe- explain to people what your participation was and why DARPA was doing these self-driving challenges and how absolutely pathetic and insane looking self-driving was back in 2007. Yeah, so so back then, uh, self-driving wasn't even really the way we talked about it. We talked about autonomous vehicles or, or robot cars. Uh, and so Some back robot in... Robot cars is great. Yeah, <laughs> um, or just robots. So back in 2003, DARPA had their first grand challenge, and this was to get a robot to drive from Los Angeles to Las Vegas across the desert. Uh, and I was back at Carnegie Mellon at the time as a grad student. Uh, and um, DARPA's goal was to get young men, men and women out of harm's way, uh, right, out of the logistics supply chain. Because if you think way back to the Iraq War, um, that was where we lost the most troops, was was people moving wow. goods and supplies. Uh, and so can we make that safer? Uh, and so they had this challenge uh, where they invited teams from across the country and, in fact, from around the world to come and compete uh, and the idea was it would set off from uh, the robot would set off from uh, a town in California outside of L.A., drive across the desert to Las Vegas. Uh, and so at Carnegie Mellon, I was a grad student at the time. I was the technical director for our team. And we built this just amazing uh, Humvee, so a bright red Humvee, where we cut the top off of it, put uh, an electronics enclosure in there. Um, and, what you year know, was this again? That. This was 2003. So in 2003, almost 20 years from when we're taping this, DARPA said, hey, we need to have supply lines during wars. You know, people die when they're driving their Humvees or trucks filled with supplies. There's got to be a better way. So they start a challenge, DARPA, the Defense uh, Research Project, I think. Advanced Research Projects Agency, yep. Uh, And so they go to Carnegie Mellon, an incredible school. Uh, you know, is it true? Carnegie is Carnegie Mellon free when you go there? Is it all scholarships? Uh, no, it's it's not no. free. I think for the, for really the graduate expensive. student program, 
if you get into the graduate student program, then yeah, they, they have scholarships and it's supported yeah. by the research funds that we, we, we got there. So as a student there in graduate school, do you remember when you first heard about this challenge and what attracted you to it? This is like yeah. a life-changing moment for you. No, it was, ex- it, it was really exciting, right? I, so I, at the time, was down in the Atacama Desert in Chile, uh, and we had this robot that was um, uh, called Hyperion, and it had four wheels, and it moved at about 30 centimeters a second, uh, maybe 15. So think about it. If you had a walker, that's how fast you're moving. Great. Um, and we were down there. This was a NASA project to explore how do you look for signs of life with a robot on other planets, because the Atacama Got Desert is is – this beautifully incredible place. It's kind of like Mars in that there's just, it's desolate. And mm. we were looking for signs of, um, of life in the form of little fungus and, and other things that would live on rocks. Very hard to detect. And my advisor came down and said, we need to build a robot to drive across the desert at 50 miles an hour. Uh, and I thought that sounds really cool. Um, I'd love to be part of that because, you know, it just, it, it sounded like an incredible technological challenge. Now, at that time, the iPhone does not exist. No. Sensors do not exist that are in the iPhone, like accelerometers. LiDAR exists in some form. Uh, Computer visualization and computer cameras are probably limited to very low specs. What what were the challenges at that time, pre-iPhone, and then post-iPhone, and and that, how has life changed? in this because my understanding i've heard this from a lot of people is making a couple of billion smartphones we must be at what 10 billion smartphones have been made over the years the 10 billion smartphones have had a dramatic impact on your business yeah it's we have been making fundamental advances ourselves but we've also been benefiting from advances in the rest of of industry so yeah we we had you know i think we were pushing it at a one megapixel camera uh we had lidar but at the time, uh, a LiDAR was a single beam that spa- uh, scanned across. So it kind of looked like a coffee maker. It's a company called SICK, a German company that made them. Uh, and so the challenges were, um, oh, and, and deep learning wasn't a thing. Machine learning was kind of coming out of the AI winter, and we were using some of those ideas. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so we had this Humvee. We had to drive across the desert. We had just a single beam of laser data. And so one of the challenges our, our vehicle had to uh, – one of the challenges was how do you point that in the right place? And mm. so our vehicle had this gyroscopically stabilized gimbal that we built from scratch to point a special laser so that it could steer down the path as it was bouncing over rocks and whatnot. Um, if you remember the Itanium, which was you know a big breakthrough for Intel that's now defunct, uh, right? That was you know we we had one of the first Itanium processors to try and get enough computation on a vehicle to do this. Today, it's almost foregone that if you're going to build a self-driving vehicle, you're going to use high-definition maps. That didn't exist back then. And so we, wow. we prototyped some of the first Google Maps didn't exist ideas. or it was just getting started? Uh, so Google remember. Maps, actually, Google Maps literally didn't exist. Right. Uh, but, but there were nav maps. But the idea of a really, like a high-definition map, so mm. even Google Maps today isn't, H, you know, isn't high-definition, isn't kind of centimeter accurate. And so we were prototyping and building those early ideas that are now very commonplace in, in the way that we, we solve the problem today. So for the audience who's listening, describe the hardware stack um, increase that you're using now in 2021 after suffering yeah. through one megabit cameras in 2003. Yeah, so, so today, our, 
Yeah. So so back then it was one one megapixel camera. Uh, we had a couple of these coffee uh, machine shaped lidars that were single plane. Um, we had the stabilized lidar, uh, and then we had a, a, a very early concept of kind of an imaging radar. Uh, today in con- oh, and and then we had uh, I think they were one itanium and a couple of the the core one type processors. Today we're we're running GPUs from Nvidia plus you know some of the high end uh, multi core processors from from Intel. Uh, we run two to eight megapixel cameras in the vehicles, uh, but they're much higher performance even than the, the one megapixel cameras that were there back in the day. We have uh, multi beam lasers. One of the big innovations we have at uh, at Aurora is this uh, frequency modulated continuous wave lidar, uh, our first light lidar that allows us to see dramatically further, but also not just see the shape of the world, but see how fast the world is moving at us. We've got modern automotive radar. Uh, so it's, it's very much night and day. And we're, you know, mm. the, the advances on the hardware have been profound. The advances on software have been profound as well, uh, right? When you look at the, the hardware advances, that's pretty obvious. And software, which, which has had a more dramatic impact on making self-driving a reality right now? Is it largely a software problem from this point forward? And the hardware is good enough? Or does the hardware need to advance another generation or two? We're going to continue to advance the hardware. We think that's a strategic advantage for us as a company. We think it's an important technology. And we're making some, like, we we have some pretty breakthrough things that we're excited about there. I think the software is probably the bigger core to push on. Studies have shown that a truly diversified portfolio needs more than the traditional mix of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. It should also have some exposure to private real estate. Studies have shown that portfolios with an allocation to private real estate generally delivered a better risk-adjusted return with more annual income and lower volatility over the past two decades. Why is that? Because of its consistent performance through multiple market cycles. With Fundrise, this level of powerful diversification is now available to you. Fundrise provides access Access to diversified portfolios of real estate to all investors with their industry-leading, easy-to-use platform. Whether you're looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or you prefer long-term growth through appreciation, Fundrise makes investing in real estate as easy as investing in stocks, bonds, or mutual funds. Fundrise's team of real estate professionals carefully vets and actively manages all of their real estate projects. And with their easy-to-use website, you can track your portfolio's performance and watch as properties across the country are acquired, improved, and operated via dynamic asset updates. So here's your call to action. See for yourself how 150,000 investors have built a better portfolio with private real estate. It takes just a few minutes to get started. Go to fundrise.com slash twist. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash twist. Fundrise.com slash twist. What were in the DARPA challenges? I I just remember seeing these videos and, and just being enamored with the entire concept. But it was also kind of made fun of just how pathetic these things actually performed at the time. So what was actually, how far did they actually go? And they were crashing yeah. into each other, flipping over. I mean, it, it was, yep. it, it was not pretty, I think is a generous, uh, well, I, think, I think like anything, it was early days. Yeah. Uh, and so that first race, our vehicle about 10 days before qualifying for the competition 
we were out testing and rolled the thing and crushed, you know, the, the sensors and had <laughs> to rebuild it. I remember. It. Oh my yeah, God, that's going to be heartbreaking. Was, you spent it, it, a year it, on that thing and it cost a hundred right. grand and you rolled it. And you rolled it. It cost a little more than a hundred grand. Um, and so, you know, like any team, we rallied and pulled it together and qualified. And we ended up actually qualifying first and heading wow. out in the desert on race day. And our team went the furthest. And of the 150 mm. miles we were supposed to go, we went about seven and a half. Product of the speed and the distance we went, it was a huge step forward. Um, mm. we, we did drive through three fence posts. Uh, the poor thing ended up um, on a berm at the side of the road. It kind of cut a corner and got high centered. And, mm. and this is actually one of the more tragic robot videos you'll see where it gets itself high centered and it doesn't understand that. So it realizes it realizes it's not moving forward. And so its answer is press the gas pedal harder. And so the wheels are spinning and, oh, and they're amazing. just, they're just grading, grazing the, uh, the trail. And so they start melting the tires. So you get this big black oh, cloud. Awesome. And then the, we of course were not out on the course. The judges were from the defense department. Mm. Uh, and so they had a kill switch. So when they realized, you know, it's not getting out, they stopped it. And one of the really interesting little tidbits is Humvees. Unlike your car, which will have brakes out in the wheels, mm. actually have the brakes inboard. And, you know, this is for a really good reason, right? If you're out in the middle of the desert and someone's shooting at you, you don't want the brakes to get shot. So, yeah, turns out when they when they hit the emergency stop, these clamped in, but the wheels had so much spinning inertia <gasps> that they snapped the half shafts. And so this poor thing Brilliant. has been out in the desert and trying its hardest and it gets stuck and it's almost literally on fire and then it breaks. So it's... It's kind of a tragic end of the day for the thing. What are you thinking and what is DARPA thinking? Was there a spirit of we're on this journey together and, hey, we got 5%, so if we just double every year, hey, you know, we'll be, we'll be able to yeah. get there in 10 or 20 years? Or was it like, did you have this sense and pit in your stomach like this is a, this is a bridge too far, we're never going to get this done? No, it was, it was clearly we're going to go back and do this again. And, you know, to their credit, that day, the Defense Department said, we'll be back here in a year, you know, we'll update the rules, come play. Uh, and, you know, from their perspective, they, you know, th they weren't funding this like a conventional research project. So the, mm. the, the idea was, if you get to the finish line, we'll pay you a million dollars. And if you don't, uh, you know, things are coming out. So the second year, they're like, okay, we're going to do this again. And if you get to the finish line, we'll pay you $2 million. If you're the first of the finish line, we'll pay you $2 million. Um, and so that's what we did. We, we spent the next year, uh, working our butts off, figuring out what didn't work. We built a second one of these vehicles. We're out testing in Nevada, just again, some beautiful terrain with the, these, these vehicles out there. Uh, once again, we managed to roll one of them, you know, mm -hmm. 10 days before the qualifying and got it put back together. Mm -hmm. We go through the qualifying. We've got these two Humvees. We qualify first and third with the team from Stanford, um, in the middle. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, comes race day we launch it off into the desert and it turns out this time both of our vehicles finish uh along wow. with the team from stanford and and two others so it was a huge step forward in terms of addressing what the problem was the what was the leap there that you went from nobody qualifying and going five percent to three people make it 150 miles and yeah. somebody gets two milli yeah it was it was five of us made it the whole way wow it was it was time, right? So we had been. Mm. What was exciting about these challenges was there was a lot of great work happening, and they allowed us to focus all of these research advancements, you know, into a single thing and and have it go operate. And so it was 
it was the time and energy that we put into it over the year and, and the consolidation of work. And it was just, you know, it was really um, an incredible day for robotics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was the second challenge. That year, the, the team from Stanford won. Our team came second and third from Carnegie Mellon. Uh, so we were obviously a little disappointed by that. Uh, but, you know, it was nonetheless uh, an incredible day. And then a couple of months later, the Defense Department said, that's been awesome. Uh, what we'd love to do is have another competition. But this time, instead of driving in the desert, we're going to do this on a road network. Uh, mm. Because, you know, it's great that the, your vehicles can kind of stay on the road and not hit too many things. It'd be really nice if they could stay on their side of the road and they could mm. interact with other traffic. And so this was the urban challenge, which we had the competition for in 2007. Wow. And so you get through all these journeys, and here we are. It feels like self-driving is very close. I drive a a Tesla every day, and I've been using autopilot and watching it get better and better and better. And obviously, I've been watching other projects get closer and closer. Yet, this idea that we would be in a car without a steering wheel, without a driver, still seems to be the elusive three to five years away, three to five years away. Sitting here today, having been through this for two decades, and knowing what you know, when do we think we'll have, you know, an Uber or a Lyft pick you up in a major city somewhere in the country, could be on a predefined route, and take you from point A to point B without a safety driver, without a steering wheel? Yeah, so so the steering wheel is a second thing, but today... Uh, you can go to Phoenix, uh, and the team I used to lead has some vehicles on the road. You can call one and get in, and it'll drive you, and there'll be no one in the front seat. Uh, and that's kind of incredible. Um, and what kind of route is that going? Is it like on a predefined route where you're absolutely certain? And is there a safety driver like at home base listening over 5G or something? So I so I don't know exactly the details, ah. but I don't think it's a, well, it's not a predefined route that there's a collection, mm-hmm. like there's an area that they operate within. It's not everywhere, but it's, yeah. it's a chunk of, of Phoenix. Is this yours or this is Waymo's? This is, this is Waymo's. This is the team Waymo's, I used to lead. Yeah. 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 So they, they're doing these routes. We've seen that before. And I think there's a, I think the idea is there's a safety driver somewhere. When will you, where are you at with Aurora's technology? And uh, when do you think you all be doing point A to point B? And where would that occur in, in, a, in, a, in a grid-like system, on a predefined route, and, yeah. you know, on the 280 or something like that, or the 5 between LA? What, what do you think is the first taste we'll get of no driver and just lean back and sleep in the car or, or play chess or something? Yeah. So, so for Aurora, we're taking a bit of a different tactic. So for the last few years, we've been building the foundational technology to actually build something to scale uh, and to be able to commercialize it rather than, than build a demo. And our first product will be in trucking. And so expect that to happen likely in Texas because that's one of the, the major freight hubs in the U.S., one of the places where, where trucking is, is needed most. And yeah, it'll be something where truck will depart from a terminal, get on the freeway, drive for a number of hours, get off the freeway and stop at a terminal at the other end. And that'll happen in the coming years. And we think that's the right first path for a few reasons. So one is that it's a really hard problem. Uh, you need to see a long way. And we have the technology, we think maybe uniquely that we can see far enough to make that happen. This um, is the LIDAR you have that I think is a thousand feet right now. 
This is the first light LIDAR, which we which allows us to see, you know, several hundred meters down the road, allows us to see not just the things that are there, but how fast they're moving, which ah. we think is really powerful relative to kind of conventional LIDAR in the space. The other really exciting thing about this approach is, from a technical point of view, there's, there's two other points I'd make about that. One is that the freeway network is really self-similar. And what I mean like that is if you got on a bit of freeway in Texas or you got on a bit of freeway in Arizona or you got on a bit of freeway in Minnesota, they'll basically look the same and they operate mm. the same. And so as you think about building a business, the ability to scale that business through operations as opposed mm. to technical advancement is really important. In contrast, if you go to San Francisco uh, and you go to mm-hmm. an intersection and then you go, say, five blocks away, the road looks completely different. The type yep. of actors are around change dramatically, the structure of the intersection. And so to scale there, you have to be advancing technologically. And so as a business, it makes sense to think about things that apply the freeway network first. The other is around the way that the, the, the kind of opportunities you have to optimize and think about performance versus safety. So if I want to take a, a, a taxi from my house to the movie theater, Mm-hmm. Um, right. I'm pretty particular about when I get there because I want to see the previews before it starts. And I want to make sure I've got time to get a popcorn or whatever. Um, and I know that the right route is to take this road, then that road. Uh, and if I get in a taxi or an Uber and it doesn't take that route, I get really frustrated, right? Like, sure. no, there's a much better way. We got to go that way. Whereas if we're a truck hauling goods, the goods don't care as long as mm-hmm. we get there within the three hour window. And so the, the, the driver then can pick the route that is incrementally safer, incrementally easier, as long as it meets the service requirements, right? And that, that ability to use our understanding that this little bit of road is safer for whatever reason means that we can start to deploy and, and, and build the product sooner. Whereas if you have to serve every customer and all of their whims, that's a super demanding and constrained environment. Hey, it's time for another R-Crowd deal of the week. Right now, you can join R-Crowd's investment in Moodify. According to the deal memo, Moodify is radically altering the multi-billion dollar fragrance market by digitizing scents. Moodify is the first company to develop software that enables function-specific scents that, according to the deal memo, improve mental performance, eliminate the perception of bad odors, and much, much more. You can get in early on Moodify and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com slash twist. By the way, did you know that rcrowd investors were able to get in on some of the best IPOs of 2019 and 2020? They benefited from companies IPOing like Beyond Meat and Lemonade, and some of rcrowd's companies have been acquired by buyers like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, Oracle, and Uber. With rcrowd, accredited investors can invest directly and easily in startups early before they IPO or get bought. Accredited investors can participate in single company deals for as little as $10,000 or one of RCrowd's funds for as little as $50,000. Again, the RCrowd account is free. Just go to OURCROWD.com slash twist. So when would you feel safe driving in between two self-driving trucks in Texas? Today? Next year? Two years? With your family? You know, in between those trucks? Because people are a little nervous about yeah. this. So today these vehicles are on the road with highly trained operators, vehicle test operators in them. I feel very comfortable driving around them uh, today. Absolutely, right. no doubt. 
taking out the, su- the operators, would you feel safe or do we need another year or two? We need some time on that, right? Yeah. And, and that, that's a process um, where, you know, I can tell you our technology isn't there yet today. Mm. Uh, we take safety very seriously. To have confidence, we're going to have a safety case that mm. explains why, uh, right, and captures the work we've done as to why we believe this is safe. And that safety case really has kind of three pillars to it. One pillar is uh, how is our organization operating and how are the vehicles being operated? So um, are they being maintained appropriately? Are they are we verifying calibrations? You know, are we doing all of the operational stuff? Are we constraining it so it's only working in places where we, we know it's good? So this is operational safety and organizational safety. The, the second is really around what happens when something breaks. And this is normally what people think about when they think about functional safety or, or safety or product. So it's driving down the freeway and a screw comes loose. Uh, does it fail catastrophically or does it actually have paths to mitigate that and, ah, and behave so safely? So graceful shutdown, graceful. graceful. If, the, if the LIDAR yeah. got hit by a bird tragically and, you know, yep. you, you got bird guts on the LIDAR, <laughs> uh, not to be graphic, it, something has yeah. to happen. And uh, the very simple thing to happen is slow down, put the flashers on and go into the shoulder. And if it's on a road, as you're saying, that's super predictable. Yep. And so that's what's called functional safety. And that's that second pillar mm. of safety. Uh, and then the third is, is it safe operating nominally? Uh, and kind of the, the, the nominal being normal. Normal. Yeah. Then the jargon Fancy word, word for, this for normal. Is yeah. Normal. Yeah. And, and the jargon word is SODIF, uh, safety of the intended function. And so this is when so it's driving. Safety of the intended function. Function. SOTIF. I like that. Yeah, that's not a bad word. The, is that a military acronym or, uh, it's or, a, an, or it's is a, that like a uh, it's a safety school no, term of so art? Yeah, got it. Uh, action, uh, a word I should say. And so yeah. that is uh, when it's driving. You know, it drives down the road, not the sidewalk, right? Uh, that uh, when it's driving normally and everything's good, it's slowing down appropriately for other traffic, or it's merging mm. safely on. And so there's a collection of data for that. And so ultimately, we have the we'll have the safety case that covers all three of these pillars and explains with either this is the design decisions that were made that, that lead to safety. These are the tests we've run to verify those designs. This is the, you know, this is the process of procedures we've tested and validated to show that it, it works. Now we, you don't operate in a logical world. You operate in the emotional real world. Uh, and the real world is filled, filled with politicians, the media, well, link baiting media at times who like to take, maybe a safety record that is 10 times better than humans and, you know, harp on, you know, somebody using, let's say, autopilot incorrectly, or, you know, somebody stands on top of their motorcycle, like this is just people using the technology, not as it was intended, not the intended function. I don't know if there's an acronym for doing stupid stuff with technology. But people do stupid things all the time with all kinds of technology, they they do donuts with cars, whatever. And so is they're going to be a middle phase in self-driving with these trucks in which maybe instead of trying to go fully autonomous, we say all drivers should have these safety systems as standard so that in, you know, we, and I know this is an optimal maybe for a business or maybe it is where we just say as a society, listen, we're going to keep the drivers, but no more drivers without LIDAR, no more drivers without computer visualization, uh, the drivers have to have these basic things, just like anti-lock brakes, 
you know, seat belts, etc. Wouldn't that be just as good of an outcome? Because we keep the drivers employed, sure, it takes another decade. But then they're not capable of running into the back of another truck, because, tr- you know, the, the system would not let them. Is that going to be yeah. the likely scenario is a decade of just, you know, upgrading all the technology until we get to self driving? And is that a victory for you as a business? I don't think that's how this plays out for a variety of reasons. So first, there's a lot of really good work happening in what I would call driver assistance systems, which are the kind of things you're describing, where it's, yeah. um, if you, if you uh, aren't paying enough attention and you fa- fail to hit the brakes because you're about to crash into something, it'll start to hit the brakes for you and mitigate the collision or potentially avoid it. And I think that's a really valuable and important technology to go uh, to, to be pushing forward because it can help in certain situations. There are limits to how far you can push that technology. So if I'm a aggressive, sporty driver, I may be charging up behind another vehicle with the intent to make an aggressive last minute move to kind of swerve past them. You know, I'm kind of a jerk, but I know what I'm doing. And, and if at that, if at a moment where I'm about to make that swerve, the vehicle decides there's about to be a collision. And so it hits the brakes. Well, it's using up a big chunk of the friction that I have available to make that maneuver. Uh, And so now I can't make that maneuver and now I end up crashing into the back of that thing because I was planning to swerve to the left and it hits the brakes Got and it. I can't swerve anymore. And so there's limits to how aggressive these systems can be because they don't understand the mind of the driver. Got and so it. there's a bound on the performance there. And so, so there's a fundamental limit to how good they can be. They can, stop, they can help a lot of things, but they can't help all cases. And so that's a problem. The, the other is that one of the real advantages with self-driving vehicles is that the safety benefits come along for the ride, if you will. Hmm. So you, you use a self-driving vehicle in a personal application because you can't drive anymore and you'd like to get somewhere. Or uh, you, it's inconvenient to park and so it's nice to get a ride to where you want to go. Uh, and you don't, you don't use it as a customer because it's safer necessarily. You use it because of all these other advantages. And it just turns out that it's an attentive, thoughtful, safe driver. Uh, and so you get the safety benefit. Whereas if you had to pay just for the, the equipment to provide the safety benefit, you probably wouldn't. And mm. it would drive up the cost of the, the vehicle in a way that, that that's what probably What would these trucks prohibitive. cost then? I mean, that makes total sense. It, you have to get the value of the self-driving. What is it going to cost? What does it cost today um, yeah. to outfit a truck? And then what do you project it would cost? five and 10 years down the road. So three numbers, maybe ballpark. Yeah, I think, so I think today ballpark, these are hundreds of thousand dollars of equipment that you're putting on the vehicles to test. Got it. Right. 100, um, 200,000. Yeah. Somewhere, you know, kind of in that range. Uh, right. It. And it's small volumes of prototype stuff. There'll be uh, like anything. It'll come down a cost curve to this gets to, you know, maybe it's 10,000, maybe it's, you know, 15,000, 20,000, something like that. Right. Um, but you know, and, and those are those are kind of orders of magnitude type numbers, and it turns out that those cost numbers make an incredible sense in the terms of a fleet business. So, right. an Uber or a, a FedEx or a UPS or a, a Schneider, Amazon, right? whoever, and any of those sense. type of customers. But it's that's still expensive for you as a personal uh, as a personal um, ownership and or for personal ownership. And part of it also is that, and this is one of the larger longer-term trends that I expect, 
is that for many people, it won't make sense to own a car. That yeah. if you think about a car today, you drive it probably 4% of the time that you own it. Yeah, it makes no uh, sense and, to own it. And, and well, particularly if you live in a city, whereas in the future, if we bring the cost of delivering that service down to the point where it's competitive with owning a car, now you don't have to worry about parking and circling the block and seeking that out, right? You know, you can work and enjoy it or enjoy the ride instead of driving. It'll make sense for people to tip, flip over and then and use these vehicles and they'll get used dramatically more than 4% of the time a day. And so you're amortizing the incremental cost increase over much more utilization. So it becomes dramatically more cost effective as well. Two questions about, you know, this interim period. Should certain roads or certain lanes on certain roads be designated as self-driving as part of this process as a society as we adapt this? And then what role does speed play? Should yeah. these trucks be in their own lane going 50 miles an hour or even 40 miles an hour? I don't know what's safe um, or 55. And just be kind of, uh, you know, this stream, if you will, <laughs> running yeah. next to regular traffic with even cones or something or a barricade. And we, we have that as a starting point, because if they were going 45 miles an hour in their own lane and running 20 hours a day, 10 hours a day without a driver, I think we could all feel very safe about them. Yeah, I, I think they have to work with the infrastructure as is today. Okay. Right? Our, our road infrastructure hasn't kept pace with the growth in utilization, mm. meaning that our roads are busier, more congested than they ever were. And so the idea of taking one of these really valuable common resources, you know, a lane uh, on the freeway and dedicating it to this technology at a point where it hasn't proven itself and isn't generating real societal value feels like not the right answer. And so as we get this technology deployed, as we start to see value, then we can have conversations about do we want to change the allocation of these shared resources? But I really think it makes sense to bring, you know, to, to meet the world where it is, as opposed to try to conform the world to what we might want it to be. Every startup needs to ensure they own their intellectual property, or IP, and that starts with filing your trademarks. What is a trademark? Well, that is the name of your company, essentially. There's copyright, there's trademark, you read all about it on the internet. I have launched my investment company, I have This Week in Startups. You need to trademark the names of what you do, so somebody, some bad actor, doesn't come along and say, oh, I'm going to file it. And then you've got to prove and spend a ton on legal to try to say, I used this before them and I'm already using this in commerce. It's going to cause all kinds. Trust me, I've been there. If you don't know where to start, look no further than Brain-Based File. It's a clean, simple, and automated trademark filing platform that gives anyone the ability to protect their best ideas. There is no need to spend thousands of dollars on a lawyer to file your trademark for you. Nope. Now you can do everything yourself in a few easy steps. Brain-based file gives you goods and services recommendations using AI so that you can avoid back and forth office actions with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and eliminate human error. They also offer full transparency into the USPTO's process with step-by-step -step notifications and real-time updates on your trademark's approval. No one likes dealing with trademarks, but brain-based file makes it easy, elegant, simple, and affordable head to brainbase.com slash twist and enter the code twist at checkout to file your first trademark now for just 169 dollars that's a 15 percent discount thank you to brainbase for giving our audience a nice discount what about speed uh you know i've, I've always been fascinated by this 
kind of concept that we care about safety and but we don't we could very easily speed limit cars like when you rent a car it's speed limited and as a society we have this kind of concept of freedom in america and i guess part of that is freedom to buy a car that's capable of going 205 miles an hour 150 miles per hour even though there is almost no use case for that except going to the track and why don't we have speed limits on cars you know some reasonable 100 miles an hour 85 miles an hour whatever plus 15 of the you know plus 15 miles to the highest speed limit in the country um and and is that a something you would advocate for with self-driving is saying hey these are self-driving cars but they stay in the lane and they cannot go more than you know the speed limit yeah, so, so I can't actually speak to the, the first societal decision on this. It's an mm. interesting one about kind of yeah. American individualism. and uh, But it's not just in the U.S., right? It's, just, you know, you have the Autobahn in Germany uh, yeah. where you literally have no speed limit and you can, you know, enjoy your vehicle assuming you're competent of driving it well. Quite an experience uh, if I've done it. <laughs> You've done it, I take it? Uh, I, I haven't driven my own car there, but I have been yeah. on there at uh, some reasonable speed. It's wild. Uh, <laughs> I was doing 120 yeah. in a Beamer. And I mean, I was getting run off the road by Porsches doing 150, 200 miles an hour. It was bonkers. Yeah. And, and with that, though, comes more rigorous driver training, uh, more rigorous ad- adherence to the, the kind of pass on the left rule and don't pass yeah. on the right rule because it's, it's necessary to, to maintain safe, uh, safe driving. So, yeah, I don't know why exactly we don't. I guess people, you know. Like people yeah, enjoy freedom. the flexibility of freedom, right? America. <laughs> um, f- for for self-driving vehicles, I think that one of the benefits is that they won't have ego. Uh, mm-hmm. And that um, because you're able to use the time in the vehicle or um, you're not paying someone for the time in the vehicle, they can drive at the speed limit. Uh, and that will increase safety on our roads because one of the things we know is that speed is a major contributor to accidents. Uh, and certainly to fatalities, right? I mean, yeah. if you look at the fatality rate, when you go above 85, 95 miles an hour, it just skyrockets. And yeah. I, that's one of the things I love about my Tesla is I could speed limit it and say, you know, no no more going over 70 miles. I think I have mine set to 79 or 81 miles an hour or something, just in case I happen to get up there. But, you know, I'm going to live a long yeah. life. I don't want to yeah. die, you know, and have a great life. It's so dumb. Um, so what do you think is going to happen in terms of, there are so many people who are working on this concurrently, it's got at least like six or seven major players. Do you think everybody kind of gets there in the next five to 10 years, and the technology is a bit commodified? How do you see this market coming to fruition? Is it going to look like the PC market where you have a lot of options, you could buy Compact or Dell or Max? Is, is or is you know two players you know yourself and tesla going to get there at the same time or you tesla waymo are going to get there and yeah. then there, there's no other opportunity how is this all going to shake out in a business and wh- what is your strategy there obviously trucks to start makes total sense yeah. with uber freight and you know they, they can afford to spend a hundred thousand on a rig no problem but wh- what is the market going to look like in 10 years yeah so so there's a lot wrapped up in that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's all, Tell all, us all kinds exactly of stuff in the future. <laughs> yes, yeah, so let me let me As look at my it. crystal ball here. Um, so so one is we expect consolidation to continue. We've been I've been saying this for years that it's amazing that there were so many companies experimenting, exploring the space that's necessary in a new innovative technolo- technological space. It happens consistently, and then 
you know, the, the teams that have the right culture, the right execution, the right people, you know, go through and end up being a few that make it, right? And I expect there'll be at most a handful of companies that deliver on this technology because it's, it's really hard and you need to have the experience, you need to have the quality, you need to have the, the partnerships and backing to make it successful. And so we've been positioning Aurora to be one of those players. Something to remember is that the scale of this space is profound, that freight in the U.S. alone is a $700 billion business. That's just in the U.S. Transportation, ground transportation in the U.S. is something like a 2 to $3 trillion space. Uh, and so there's room for, uh, you know, incredible, com- uh, uh, incredible companies, incredible growth in this space with, you know, a handful of companies just in the U.S. And globally, it's three to four times that scale. So incredible space, incredible opportunity. Now, what will the the business model be ultimately? Yeah. Selling to, uh, you know, somebody like um, selling products and hardware and services to somebody like Uber and then just adding 100,000 cars to their networks? Or is it going to be, you know, as yeah. I guess Elon believes, he's going to just put everything as a robo taxi and he'll have a competitor to Uber? I was just curious how you think the whole space kind of yeah. hashes like out because it, it does seem to me with this many players we should have a number of people just like in the DARPA challenges reach this proverbial finish line at the same time yeah I, I think that I don't think there's going to be as many as uh, like I, I don't see this becoming a commodity is, is the short answer um, so maybe us, three or four people make it yeah that, that's kind of the <laughs> scale that I think um, and, and so the way I think this works and our business model is really to provide our platform the Aurora driver as a service Mm-hmm. And so we'll work with our partners, uh, Packard, Volvo, Toyota, and, and others as we, we um, build them, uh, where they'll bring the vehicle, uh, we'll bring the driver, and those will be provided to uh, customers imp- through through fleets, whether it's through mm-hmm. the Uber network or through um, freight and logistics networks. And then we'll generate uh, a revenue stream that looks like a software as a service business. Hmm. Uh, so we'll get paid for every mile that the Aurora driver uh, drives a truck for a partner. And, and this really comes down to kind of one of our core values of focus. So we think the thing we can do best in the world is build the driver. Um, and I look at a business like, you know, Packard's business building trucks. This is an incredible company, right? It's been around for hmm. basically a century. They deliver incredible products. They know they have the relationships with the, the customers why do I want to compete or replicate that? Why not work with them? Yeah. Uh, and we can bring our, our understanding of how to deliver the driver. They can bring their understanding of how to build trucks, their incredible service network and dealership network. And together, we can grow their business and grow our business and serve their customers. And similarly, we look at it with, um, with people moving, that Uber's business is profoundly complicated. Um, yep. Why replicate that? Toyota's business, these are, again, an incredible company, 100-year-old company that knows how to make stuff well. Why don't we work together with both of them where, again, we bring the driver, Toyota brings the car, Uber has the network and serve their customers and allow them to grow their business. How much of the business ultimately will be about the data set that you own and you update? I mean, we you have Teslas on the road that have the self-driving technology in it, whether people buy it or not, and they're just contributing day in and day out. There's a million Teslas out there probably with the with these, um, you know, collecting data. You have the Waymo cars, obviously have a much smaller footprint. Then you have every Uber out there with an app on the phone. It's collecting some amount of data and could collect more. So how much of this will ultimately be about the data set, the GPS, the wor- real world data, 
And then is anybody sharing this data? I always thought this would be an amazing open source product. If you could get two or three companies saying like, hey, there's the open maps project, obviously, but here's our real world data. We went to this intersection. This is an intersection in the world where there's a lot of accidents. And all of you pool, here's everything we know about this intersection that is dicey. And you could have some sort of collaboration in the spirit of saving lives and say, listen, <laughs> when the 280, you know, and the and the whatever highway merge and the five, it's a disaster. This is where we have the majority of accidents, you know, in this 100 mile range, we all need to pool the data here and come up with a better solution. Yeah, so so I do think data is important. I think the right kind of data matters. So, you know, Tesla's building driver assistance technology. It's a little different than, um, you know, full self-driving capability that we're working towards. They, uh, I think that, yes, we think about how do you use data effectively. Uh, we've put a major investment in simulation because it doesn't matter. It's expensive to pull data in the real world. We can generate incredible varieties and target it exactly the type of scenarios that matter most to advance the system and do that synthetically. And we have a, this, this, you know, the, the ability to emulate our LIDAR, our radar, our camera, and do that in a sensor-realistic way that allows us to get exactly what we want super efficiently and then run it super repeatably. So we think that's a So that's valuable. literally like working on a, like a quake engine or something, like a, like a video it's game a, engine? <laughs> it, it's a built-from-scratch engine, uh, wow. right? And, and so we've, we've brought in folks from the computer graphics industry from, from film who actually understand light transport because the application is a little different. If you're building a video game engine, you want something that looks good enough, um, but can churn quickly. Whereas mm. we really want to actually act accurately replicate the way the light moves through the world, um, whether that's, wow. you know, or, or the energy, whether it's RF or, or light, light RF. So it's literally like a Pixar film where they try to get the hair right and make it perfect or you know, uh, the avatar or something, and then you can run a simulation and say, hey, let's run a bicycle, let's run an, you know, a car that's flipping over a boulder coming down the hill, you could just run simulation after simulation, and train the AI and the machine learning to understand what's happening. Importantly, but, validate it, right, um, from that. And so as we think about gathering data, there's three ways that you three reasons to gather data. So one, or to have a fleet of vehicles in the road, one is to understand the distribution of events that happen in the real world. So how often do you see a person in a wetsuit step into the road? Um, right? <laughs> Turns out not very often. Yeah. Um, Scuba diver uh, in the road, look out. <laughs> yeah, and, and the reason why I bring that up is it turns out wetsuit material is not very reflective. Uh, oh. And so they're actually a hard person to see. So, you know, understanding that matters. So that's one reason to get data. And so there's lots of ways to understand the distribution of events that don't require you to drive a million vehicles around because other people are doing that already. Mm -hmm. um, then there's um, gathering the data you need to improve the system. Uh, mm -hmm. And so for us, we use simulation to do that. We use very targeted on-road tests where we're like, we need to go get exactly this data for the advancements we're making. Let's go get that. Uh, and then the third is around validation verification. So making sure that the work you've done in uh, target testing, offline, and, and simulation actually closes the loop back when you go and test it against you know particular scenarios in the real world. And so we focus on you know across those applications, and we've been really thoughtful based on our experience of how do we efficiently gather that distribution data. How do we make sure we're targeting yet, not wastefully gathering millions of miles where we're throwing, you know, 999,000 of those miles out? 
uh, right? How mm-hmm. do we make sure we have the simulation tools so that we don't have to hope we come across this interesting event in the real world, but we realize that's interesting, we go replicate it and then build the framework so we don't just replicate it once, but we can say, okay, given this rough configuration, generate uh, a variety of variations around that. Uh, maybe it's, you know, maybe in one video, it's a, you know, it's a G-Wagon and in the next, it's a Prius, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, automatically do that rather than having to have an artist recreate each one. And Got so it. that powerful set of offline tools are one of the, you know, one of those places where our experience told us, let's go invest. That will accelerate our, our development and make a better, safer product to market. Yeah, as we get close to wrapping up here, tell me about the false positive problem. In other words, you know, the, the plastic garbage bag flies across the highway and your truck thinks it's a car, a boulder, a scuba diver in a wetsuit, etc. Yeah. Slams on the brake unnecessarily, flips the car or causes an accident, unintended second order, third order effects. Where are we at? Is that a, a serious problem? Because we did have, tragically, in the early days of autopilot, a white truck in the sunlight go across the road, a Tesla went underneath it and, and killed the, uh, tragically killed the super fan of Tesla's who was watching a Harry Potter movie and not paying attention and breaking all the rules back to yeah. not using the technology as it's intended. You know, it's obviously not Tesla's fault there, but there is this problem of like, you know, false positives or white things, you know, that are floating in the yeah. air. So I guess there's two different ver- two different types of problem there. Yeah. And you so, can address so, those. So one is that example of a Tesla going under a uh, under the truck and having the fatal accident or fatal collision. That's part of the reason why we think it's so important to have different sensor modalities. If we had using LIDAR, using radar, there would have been enough information there to know that there's a truck there versus a template matching computer vision system that's just looking for the back of things. Hmm. Well, it, you know, it wasn't that the truck was white that was the problem. Right? It wasn't that there was a bright sky. It was that it didn't look like the back of a truck because it was the side of a truck. Right. And the system wasn't able to, to understand that and didn't have the robust sensing to, to deal with it appropriately. So that's why we think multi-sensors, uh, multiple sensors are really important. Um, the uh, the false, false positive, positive yeah. Is that problem. actually an yeah. issue or do, or do people so, just bring so that up? This is, this is actually, going back to your question earlier about why there isn't just an evolutionary path from driver assistance systems to uh, to full self-driving systems or self-driving systems is, is fundamentally this. So if you are a driver assistance system, you need to only hit the brakes uh, say it's forward collision mitigation brake when you are confident that the driver's about to have a collision. Because if you're driving down the freeway and there's nothing there, you know, you hit the brakes, you frustrate the user, and you do it a couple of times, they take it to the dealer, you do it a third time, they're like, take this back, I don't want this broken piece of garbage, right? And so you design the system so that it only hits the brake when it's really confident that there's something there. And what that means in statistical terms is it's high precision, uh, that it, it only calls braking events when there are one, and it's generally low recall, meaning that there are a bunch of th- places where it would have been great if it hit the brakes, but it doesn't hit the brakes there because it's not confident enough that, um, mm. that there's actually a real event. And, and, and it turns out that's okay for a driver assistance system because there's a person behind the wheel paying attention, and they're there to backstop it. And if you happen to hit the brakes in one of those events where they're distracted for a moment, Maybe it only worked half the time that it should have, but that's half the accidents that could have happened avoided. 
So that's an awesome product, even if it's low recall, even if it doesn't work, quote unquote, all the time. In contrast with a self-driving vehicle where the driver is not paying attention or there, there isn't a driver, there's only passengers, it has to work all the time and you need to drive up recall and precision. And so this is kind of the heart of the problem. And to do that means more robust sensing, more robust algorithms and computation on board. And that's mm. why there's, there's such a disconnect between these two technologies. And so, yes, the false positive problem is real, but the more important one is the false negative problem where you're supposed to do something and don't. Mm. It, it, what would that most likely scenario be of the false negative? I should have stopped and I didn't. That, that is essentially yeah. what happened tragically with the Uber and the bicyclist crossing the street in the middle of the night, not at an intersection, and the safety driver was on their phone tragically. You have a yeah. double fail there, putting aside the driver's yeah. negligence. And, and a variety uh, of other things, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so a false negative is, is again, it may be that, uh, it, it, you know, in our system, we've designed carefully to avoid this, but if you have a class, pure classification-based system that says, you know, let's imagine you had a system that only says, recognizes cars, trucks, and bicycles, or, and pedestrians. Um, if there's something, somebody dressed up in a chicken suit, um, right. right? They don't look like a pedestrian anymore. They're not any of those things. So you right. ignore them. And, mm. and that's kind of, you know, in very rough terms, and I don't have inside information, but very rough terms, that's what happened with the, the, the mm. event. Didn't the, the know collision. what it was in all likelihood. And, and then just, dis- yeah. right. At Aurora, we've taken an approach where we, um, we have to explain all of the data we get. So it may be that uh, we don't understand that that's a person in a chicken suit, but we understand there's something there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if there's something there, we shouldn't hit it, right? And this is kind of the the common question around the technology is how do you deal with the long tail problem? All of these things you don't see very often. cases, yeah. Right. And the answer is a lot of them really boil down to don't hit the stuff that's there, Uh, right? (laughs) And you're pretty straightforward. Don't crash into things. Try to right. avoid and, things. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, there's some subtlety, but at the heart, that's it. And so our, our, our under, you know, and again, this comes from the experience that the team has of understanding this class of problems saying, okay, we're going to explain all of the data we get. Now, we might say that's exhaust, uh, and we might be wrong about that. It might be somebody that whatever reason looks like exhaust, but we're going to have, we're going to done our our work to explain all the different parts mm. of the system all the parts of the data so that we don't have these kind of weird failures this is super morbid but uh animals on the road is a, is a big thing and it happens tragically all the time people run into things yeah. they hit a deer they hit a bird have you started uh and is there any best practice around that because swerving out of the way for you know, I don't know, yeah. a, a poor raccoon could cause a lot of human life. And we're, we're kind of getting into trolley problems. But is yeah. the idea like if this is a small animal, just go through it. And I hate to be so graphic so, rather than swerve around it and kill a, 10 people. I, 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 know? I think it I think it really is a function of the um, the situation. Mm-hmm. What I've been told by, you know, California Highway Patrol is if there's debris in the road, if you've got a long, if you've got a lot of time and you you're confident you can make a link change, then do so. Otherwise, drive through it, right? Um, right? And you know, if you if it if it's a pop up situation, it's sudden. You drive through it, yeah. Uh, and and so you know, part of poor squirrel. <laughs> part. I mean, part it's of, the logic, right? Yeah. 
Right. And, and part of that safety case I talked about earlier is doing that kind of analysis so that we can say this is deterministically the, the right thing to do, right? It, it, you know, it's the, the least bad thing to do, maybe. Um, and, and literally the definition of the trolley problem. Do, do you come into these situations a lot or is it just no, they, you all want to fill us, you know, we, we have it, an attraction to trolley car problems because they're so mentally and philosophically challenging for us, but you actually don't come into yeah, them that in, often. In practice, it doesn't come up very much. Right? Yeah. If, yeah. you know, if, think, think about how many times it's come up in your lifetime of driving. It hasn't. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, neither neither mine. Uh, right. And, and, you know, I think if you took a survey of people around you at the office, if you happen to be in an office at some yeah. point in the future, right, the answer is it doesn't come up. And, it, and it's a really interesting question about society and psychology and human nature. And it's fun for that, for sure. Yeah, but it's not a reality. Listen, Chris, you've been incredibly generous with your time and you've been so candid. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm sure you're hiring PhDs and machine learning folks. If people want to come work and save human lives and, and create the future and work with a legend in the space, how would they <laughs> uh, be able to find out about working uh, at your company? Uh, we'd love to. We are hiring. We're looking for great people. I think I couldn't pitch it better than you did. Uh, <laughs> we're at uh, www.aurora.tech and you can find about more about the company and we've got jobs listed there. And we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you. All right. Fantastic. If you're out there and you want to do something good for the world and not just make it 5% better for or help some advertiser get 5% better click throughs on their ads for Facebook, uh, go do something world positive and challenging as opposed to serving the privacy uh, industrial advertising complex. That's me saying that, not you, Chris. <laughs> but I mean, it is tragic. We have people with PhDs who are going to try to trick people into clicking links for ads. And meanwhile, we need to get to space. We need to have self-driving cars. We need VTOLs. There's so many more important things to work on. For the love of God, don't go work for Facebook and waste your PhD, people. It, it is one of the... It's one of the joys of my career, right? I've had a chance to work on something that matters, and it's something that it's important. It's fun. I work with amazing people, and you can touch it and explain it to people, right? It's yes. so much, you know, you can have a conversation. You can so sleep much fun. at night. You can sleep at night. Everybody who's listening, who's working on an ad network at Facebook, please quit and go work for Aurora. <laughs> I said it, not you, Chris. <laughs> I, I we, have the high we, ground. We'd I be more say. than happy. Yeah. More than happy to take those refugees who are wasting away in the in ad industrial privacy breaking complex continued success uh and we'd love to check in with you in another two years and see how it's all going uh and it's really important work and we thank you for that i think it's such a such an important thing to save these lives of people on the roads and also just make society more efficient and and it's just wonderful what you're doing so uh continued success and we'll see you all next time on this week in startups bye bye